from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House says there are 1,500 American citizens still in Afghanistan. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says federal officials are looking to remove all Americans who are still on the ground in Afghanistan. The goal is to withdraw all troops by the August 31st deadline next week. Blinken says those efforts will continue past the deadline for any remaining Americans who want to leave. We'll be talking more about the withdrawal in tonight's program. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin announced that all unvaccinated active duty service members and those in the Ready Reserve must get fully vaccinated immediately. No deadline has been set to complete full vaccination. Right now, 68% of active duty soldiers, including the National Guard, are fully vaccinated, according to the Pentagon. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall will speed up his plans to consolidate the military's satellite and rocket purchasing initiatives. Kendall has established a new space acquisition office that plans to buy hundreds of satellites over the next several years. This announcement speeds up the current plans to create that office by October 2022. President Biden says he will not extend the deadline to evacuate from Afghanistan. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby asked military leaders to be ready for contingency options if adjusting the timetable becomes necessary. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Doug Ollivant is a senior fellow at New America. He served as director for Iraq at the National Security Council under the Bush and Obama administrations. Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks, Amy. Do we currently have a record of every American citizen still in Afghanistan, and do we know where they are? Uh, doubtful. Uh, now, I'm sure that list is getting refined, and I'm sure that people all over the world are contributing to that list. But when you go to a country, uh, you know, Americans are a free people. When you show up in Afghanistan, uh, there's no requirement for you to register with the embassy and tell the embassy that you're there in country. Uh, and further, when you leave, there's no requirement for you to tell the embassy that you've left if you did register with them. So any list that the embassy has will have false negatives, uh, people who are, you know, who are in country but aren't on the list, and false positives, people who are on the list but are no longer in country. Um, and that's just inherent in being free Americans. So if, again, free Americans, they decide they don't want to leave Afghanistan, like maybe journalists or human rights ad advocates, will they be on their own? I think so. Uh, so we'll have those two categories. And you're right, there will be some journalists who stay. There will be some human rights advocates. I think the larger category may well be um, naturalized Americans or even Native Americans of Afghan descent who don't want to leave their family members in Afghanistan alone. I think as we're reading the news reports, we're seeing uh, that this may be the largest group that's still in country, groups of 20 and 30 extended families naturalized Americans and, and, and in some cases native born Americans of Afghan descent who went to Afghanistan thinking correctly that this summer was the last chance to see their relatives and thinking incorrectly that they'd be okay till the end of August. And then they get stuck. Exactly. Well, Secretary Blinken says there are roughly 1,500 American citizens still in Afghanistan. What happens when we get to the 31st and we're not done? What do you know of any contingency plans in place for those that do want to get out? 
I think for those who do want to get out, we'll continue to work with our partners. Uh, it's notable the Qataris uh, have really stepped up and been very helpful. We're hearing stories of the Qatari ambassador personally escorting groups of Americans through Taliban checkpoints to get them to the airport and evacuate it. So I suspect that we will still have friends who have relations with the Taliban inside Afghanistan. But let's be clear, after the evacuation is over, it's going to be dicey and you're going to be more or less on your own in Afghanistan, just as you would if you were visiting in Iran or visiting in North Korea. These are regimes with which we do not have good relations. And if you get in tr trouble with that government, there's not a whole lot the USG can do for you. Well, what does that do to logistical planning when that, you know, we've got a hard deadline, but then we've got a contingency plan, you know, either for the Pentagon or the State Department? No, this is, uh, you know, this is going to be a very, very complex problem. Um, I think we've been probably pretty good about getting all the Americans out of Kabul. Um, what we're probably being pretty quiet about prudently is just where are all these other Americans? I doubt this, these 1,500 are all still in Kabul. They may well be in other cities around Afghanistan or even deep, again, visiting relatives deep in rural Afghanistan. How do they get out? How do they find a way to cross a border, perhaps get to Pakistan? Um, these are going to be really hard questions. And I suspect they're going to have to be managed just one each. Every case is going to start becoming its own little operation rather than having one large operation that people flock to. Doug, I want to ask you about the coordination that is going on between DOD and state. Because Secretary Blinken said yesterday, he said, quote, over the past 24 hours, we've been in direct contact with approximately 500 additional Americans and for the other 1,000, quote, aggressively reaching out to them. So how are they working together? Well, I, I think aggressively reaching out to them indicates what we were talking about at the beginning. We don't necessarily know where these people are. We don't, you know, you're not required to give a phone number to the embassy or an email to the embassy. Um, and if you're out in the hinterlands, your, your phone and your email may not be particularly good. So again, these are all going to be really difficult. I'm sure state and DOD are absolutely talking to each other about how you get each of these out. Um, but this is just a really complex operation having come on us so quickly. And again, many of these people aren't being particularly aggressive about getting themselves out or are setting conditions um, under which only, you know, only under these conditions will we leave. You know, we've seen a couple, uh, I'm sure exceptional cases, but nonetheless about people running small animal rescues in Afghanistan, stating they're not leaving unless they can take all their hundred animals out with them and their staffs and so on. Doug, again, I wanna... I'm sure these are exceptional cases, but they show the difficulty that we're gonna get into with these one eaches of really unique cases as we get to the end of the evacuation. Doug, quickly, I, I want to ask you, because you were counterinsurgency advisor for Afghanistan about 10 years ago, what did you see back then as the end game? I, I'm just curious about what you were thinking back then as opposed to now. I think even 10 years ago, it was pretty plain, at least to me, uh, that the problem set was so complex that we were never going to be particularly successful. Uh, I spent a month of my life running around Ghazni province, and it was always is controlled by the Taliban. So when Ghazni City fell just a few weeks ago now, uh, that did not come as a surprise to me at all. It had always been 
uh, you know, Taliban controlled just 500, 1,000 meters outside the city gates. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch this, Doug. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mimi. Coming next, creating a new team at the CDC. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to train everyone in the organization in data science. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The CDC wants to create a new team to support training at its Injury Prevention and Control Center. The training would improve data collection and analysis across the organization. Linda DeGudis is a lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health. She's former director for the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. Linda, welcome to the program. Thank you. So what's the purpose of the Injury Prevention and Control Center? Isn't the CDC about diseases? Yes, and it, it is, and the Injury Prevention and Control Center really ties in very well with the CDC's mission in that it helps to identify um, risks for injury and, and uh, death, disability, all related to injury. You know, we know that there's over 180,000 people who die of injuries each year in the United States, um, so it's certainly a health issue. Um, and also, you know, many more, probably about 29 million or so people who are injured uh, and requiring some sort of medical care every year. So it's an important piece of looking at any kind of disease. So this initiative is to train not just data scientists on the use of data, but also doctors, biologists. What do you think of that? Well. It's very important that we understand the data and we understand how it's used, what kind of data are being used to support any kind of interventions, whether they're prevention strategies, whether they're treatments, um, whatever they might be. The data are really critically important as a piece of um, really understanding how to move forward to make some change or improve uh, patient care, um, increase prevention programs or do prevention programs that are that are effective. Um, we need the data to understand how effective they are. Well, you say when we're talking about data, I guess we should probably ask how does the CDC use data for injury prevention and control? Um, sure. And and how is that how does that impact the agency's function? Well, the CDC. Um, uses data, the CDC uses data that it summarizes. It will look at data that states are putting together about any kind of disease or you know injury as well. Um, and it will look at that and it will say, well, where are the issues? What are the problems? And the other thing we find out from the data are what are the risk factors that um, actually create a risk for disease, create a risk for injury. Um, and what are the protective factors? What kinds of things help protect someone from an injury or from an injury death? So CDC can look at those kinds of things and um, put them together, take the information, distribute it to the states, to the localities, to um, programs that are responsible for helping to prevent injuries and 
you know, really, really help people to understand the data and understand what it means and what it means to the people in their community. So Linda, give me an actual example of the sure. use of data. Let's say when you're studying and preventing something like gun violence, how mm -hmm. would that work? Well, one of the things that we found out and CDC has identified and others that there, um, for gun violence, 60% of the deaths from firearms are suicide deaths. So one of the things that we can do is we can say, okay, how do we prevent those? How do we use the data to understand um, what we can do to prevent firearm suicide? Um, so it might be working with, uh, for example, um, people who are selling firearms to help them understand what the signs might be that someone is intending to use a firearm for suicide. Um, we might look at how families could be educated as to say how to safely store firearms so that someone doesn't have access to them for an impulsive act. So there's a number of ways that they could be used. And some of those strategies have been put into place in various, you know, various locations, various communities, and they've been effective. You know, data science is always evolving. Where, where is it going? How do you see the CDC using data in the future? In the future. Um, I think there's so many ways that CDC is going to be able to use data in the future. And some of it is really keeping current with the evolution of data science, with um, ensuring that CDC staff are right up there with everyone else who works on data um, as far as their current um, understanding of data, but also understanding what new data sets are evolving. Um, what are some of the innovative ways that data sets can be combined? Um, what about big data? How much can it be used to really inform practice? All right. Well, Linda, thank you very much for joining us and talking to us about this. Okay. Thank you. Up next, is it time for the Army to embrace telework? Straight ahead on Government Matters, steps to boost the advantages of working from home. Every episode of Government Matters is on our website, govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The Inspector General's Office at the Defense Department conducted a survey. A majority of those that responded said they had positive telework experiences during the pandemic. Continuing telework options could support Army initiatives. That's according to Matt Fitzgerald, a captain in the Army. He has written an op-ed about the Army's remote work in War on the Rocks. Matt, welcome. Mimi, thank you so much for having me on. So your piece is called, It's Time for the Army to Embrace Telework. Has the Army been reluctant to embrace it? Thanks, Mimi. One quick disclaimer. The views I express here are my own and don't necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army or the federal government. Uh, but to answer your question, yes, the Army has, where other companies have remained out of the office or slowly transitioned back to the office uh, on what we hoped was the tail end of COVID-19, the Army has gone back to mass centralization 
And so what do you see as the benefits of um, working from home? I think I see the same things that many people see in the benefits of working from home. It's potentially the reduced commute times and for some people increased focus. For other people, decreased focus. It really depends on the home environment versus the work environment and the nature of the task at hand is also important. You know, there are drawbacks to working from home, right? You know, team cohesion, um, the incidental conversations that you might have when you're in the office. That doesn't happen when you're at home. Absolutely, and there are many synergies to in-person work and in-person collaboration. However, there are also some synergies to a default to decentralization. And what Jay Long and I argue in our piece is that a very small number of limited and targeted remote work billets could benefit the Army and other services within the DOD. All right, so let's talk about the three steps that you outline in your piece to maximize advantage of teleworking. Take us through those. Mimi, the first thing we argue for is a reevaluation across the board of soldiers' workflows in light of modern digital technologies. And we argue for that because the modern leave and pass policies in the Army and across the department <coughs> were written largely in the 1970s and 80s with little modification since when the internet wasn't used in the way that it is today, particularly by junior soldiers, your 18, 19, 20 year olds. Um, and again, we're not arguing that the army should be teleworking to combat by any means, but we should reevaluate day-to-day workflows and training. Uh, and then the second piece is that we should be re-examining the policies themselves. And then the third piece is that in terms of institutional and cultural norms, we should recognize remote work as a potential opportunity and not purely a threat. So why, I mean, we talked about they're reluctant to embrace telework. Why do you think they're so reluctant? Is this a, maybe a, an age thing where senior leadership is older and they just think, well, if you're working, then you have to be in the office. If you're at home, then you're not working. Maybe we see a huge difference in the feedback from younger cohorts versus older cohorts in terms of desire to be in the office. And in the military, a lot of that probably has to do with seniority, where those who are maybe more in charge and have more flexibility when they're in the office see it as a more desirable environment and a more productive environment. But those who are more junior see it as a less productive environment on the basis of a lack of flexibility. There are many other things that go into that, but there certainly is a difference in age in terms of how telework is viewed and remote work. Um, and another thing that we see is that not every service member wants to telework. Not every service member desires remote work. Oftentimes family situations or the job itself cannot be performed from home. Um, and so there needs again, to be what, that flexibility to, to accommodate that. Right, what Jay and I argue for in the article and what we both believe is that there are some service members in some roles where short-term remote work opportunities would benefit both the service member and the service. Matt, tell us about your experience uh, working from home or your colleagues' experience. What has it been like um, in, from home or in person during the pandemic? In many ways, there were difficulties that we realized where, like you said, the office collaboration, the ability to go one door over and get a quick answer were diminished. However, the efficiency gained by not commuting and having a little bit more flexibility, particularly for my peers and friends who are doing 
um, knowledge-based work, not so much your line infantrymen, which is both Jay and my background, but your lawyers, your human resources professionals, even some of your medical providers who can do telehealth have the ability to increase the volume of work that they perform without actually, or, or with, or output for the government, output for the army without actually working a much longer day. So being much more commute. efficient than in their in their work. What about the Navy, the Air Force? What what have their telework policies been? Mimi, I can't speak to the Navy's policy, but I know the Air Force has modified their policy slightly to be more accommodating. I know they still have some of the same cultural norms and defaults to centralization that the Army has. And these are two fundamentally different organizations at the end of the day, but the human resources personnel, the lawyers, the other knowledge-based workers, and the cyber professionals uh, have, I think, similar opportunities if we embrace remote work as an organization and as a tool for recruiting and retaining people who would otherwise have opportunities for remote work in the civilian market. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Matt, so much for being on the program. Thank you, Mimi. You can find a link to Matt's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too. And tell us what you thought about the program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest updates and a behind-the-scenes look at our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.